Y'all have been so good, so gracious to us. And Kenton and Lori have just been incredible. And I know some are saying, I'm so sad they're leaving. They're not leaving. He's actually teaching next week. And I'm really glad he's going to be here because I'm learning so much from him even in the first couple of weeks. And so some folks have asked me if I'm nervous. Yes, I'm nervous. I'm terribly nervous and excited all at the same time. And if you played sports in high school, you know you were always nervous until um, I played basketball until the first scrap. If you played football until the first hit. So if somebody would just come up on stage and punch me in the face, it would actually... Um, <laughs> It helped loosen up a bit. Um, I'm really, really thankful for how gracious and hospitable you've been to me and our family. It's been just a great first couple of weeks here. You're going to get to know my family more and more in coming days, but today I want to introduce you um, a picture of my oldest daughter, Eden. This is her last birthday party. Uh, She's 10. This was um, when she turned 10, we took this picture. And anytime I look at a picture of Eden uh, at any of her birthday parties, I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude because we weren't supposed to have kids. In fact, the doctors told us that that wasn't going to happen, um, that we were, we, were gonna, we were struggling with infertility and there's no way that we we're going to get pregnant. And so for four years, we prayed and just begged God for my wife to get pregnant. And if you've gone through infertility, four years is a really long time. So if you're hearing that four years, you're thinking, ah, that's just not that long. But that's 48 months if you're trying to get pregnant. It's 48 months of asking your wife once a month, hey, do you think you're pregnant? Do you think you're pregnant? 48 months of waiting. And I still remember the morning when Kay woke me up to let me know she thought she was pregnant. And so she got up earlier and I, and I heard her run into the room and she shook me in the bed. She said, baby, get up. I think I'm pregnant. I think I'm pregnant. I was like, what do you mean you think you're pregnant? And she said, well, I took, um, I just took the pregnancy test and I think it's positive. I'm like, what do you mean you think it's positive? What do you mean you think? And, and so here's what had happened. Her sister who works at a hospital gave her a bag of old pregnancy tests. Like this just big bag of it. When I say old, I, I don't mean used. I mean, um, they were expired. Okay. Expired pregnancy tests. And so she had a bag of expired pregnancy tests and, and she, she didn't have instructions. So she didn't know if it was positive positive or negative. She just thought it looks different than the other 47 times that I've taken the test. And so I think I'm pregnant, she says. I think I'm pregnant. And so I'm standing up and I'm thinking, well, we've got to figure this out. And I go into husband problem solving mode. Well, one of us isn't pregnant. One of us isn't pregnant. And if I would be the variable for the control group of you being pregnant. So some of you are smart enough to figure out what I did next. I went to the restroom and took a pregnancy test and compared the results. And my results were different than her results, which meant we were having a kid. So that's how it happened. That's how we found out. And it was, it was, oh, it was so good to find out that we were having Eden. And we named her Eden. Um, she's delight. That's from the Garden of Eden. And she would be a delight to us and to others and to ultimately to the Lord. And that's why we named her Eden Bell. And God gave us to her. God gave her to us. And it was just an amazing time. That was four years of waiting. Four years. Well, the story we're going to look at today in Joshua 5, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn there. Joshua 5. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. The, the passages of Scripture we're going to be looking at are in the bulletin that you were handed when you came in. We're going to see a story today where people received from the Lord what he had promised them 400 years ago. 400 years. 
So I waited for four. These people waited for 400 years for God to give them what he promised he would give them. So this is the story of the Battle of Jericho. It's a famous story in the Bible. And what we're going to walk away understanding about this story is that God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. Now, he may not meet our promises. He may not meet all of our wishes, but he always keeps his promises. And he keeps his promises in his time. Maybe not our time, but always his time. Now, as we read this story, I want to set it up a a bit because some of you may struggle with this story. In fact, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. Maybe you you struggle with some of the stories in the Bible and and you you struggle with, um, gosh, this is such a violent story. I mean, we're going to read about a takeover. We're going to read about a conquest. We're going to read about a war this morning. And maybe you wrestle with that. Richard Dawkins, he's a famous atheist. He says of the Old Testament that there is no more unpleasant character in all of literature than the God of the Old Testament. That's what Richard Dawkins says. And so how do we answer that? So how do as Christians, how do we, how do we wrestle with reading a story like this? How have Christians for the last 2,000 years read this story? Well, so there's some things you should think about it before we read this story. One, God is going to keep his promise, and he always keeps his promise, and he had promised his people that they would move into this land, and the land he promised them has other people living in it, and so God's going to keep his promise. He always keeps his promises to his people. We're going to see that. We also need to understand that God is going to use his people to bring about discipline and punishment on a group of people for 400 years of sin. So 400 years, these people that are living in Jericho, there's 400 years of child sacrifices and all these horrific things that these people did. And God is going to use his people to bring judgment on their sin. Now, it's not because of the type of people they are, because later God will use other people to bring judgment on his own people. So it's about It's about their sinfulness. Also, even in the midst of the judgment, God is constantly showing mercy. And so he finds, Kent mentioned this last week, he finds a woman who lives in Jericho named Rahab, and she wasn't the the epitome of righteousness among those people. In fact, she was a prostitute, but God found her and showed mercy to her, and she believed in God and feared God. So even in the middle of his judgment, God is always looking to show mercy, and he shows mercy to you too. Even in the middle of your doubts, even in the middle of your wondering, God is always looking to show mercy mercy. Okay, so let's read this story here. We'll start in Joshua 5, verse 13. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with sword in hand. Joshua went up and demanded, are you friend or foe? Let let me stop here for a moment because I want to remind us where we are in the story. So we're in week three of walking through the book of Joshua. And so Joshua is standing in the very same place that he stood 40 years before when they almost went into the land. 
They almost went into the land. God had promised this land to them, but they looked and they saw the enemy and they thought, man, we can't go in there. They're bigger than us. They're stronger than us. They have better weapons than us. We can't go in. And instead of walking in faith, they walked in fear. Well, now, 40 years later, Joshua is in the exact same place and he's looking out on Jericho and he wants to walk in courage. He wants to walk in faith. And he sees this man with a sword drawn ready to fight. And Joshua's like, man, who, who are you? Are you friend or are you foe? Are you going to fight against me or are you going to fight for me? He wants to know who this ringer is. I mean, who's this person who's going to help? He's going to fight against them or is he going to fight for them? I get what Joshua, how Joshua feels. A couple weeks ago, I started playing basketball with some of the staff here. And the first night, uh, it was old guys versus young guys. I'm on the old guy team now. I was old guys versus young guys, and we got spanked. I mean, we got destroyed. It wasn't fun at all. And so the next week, I show up to play, and there's this 6'4 guy who's dunking during warm-ups. Warm-ups, it wasn't like a real game. Uh, he, we didn't have like suits on that we took off, you know, with music playing. He was just dunking before we started playing. And I'm like, whose team is this guy on? I want this guy on, on my team. And this is what Joshua is saying when he walks up and sees this guy with a sword drawn are you friend, are you for me, or are you foe? Now, we need to see this next interaction is so important to understand this story. And it's really important for you to understand the Christian life, the promised life. Notice what the, the commander says, the man with a sword says in verse 14. Neither one, he replied, I am the commander of the Lord's army. In other words, you're asking me the wrong question. I don't join your team, you join my team. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. I, I'm the one in charge here. I'm not joining one side or another side, neither. The, the, the answer to your question is neither, and it's the wrong question. The question is, are you going to join my team? That's what the commander's asking. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. All right, before we continue, we need to understand who is this commander of the Lord's army? Who is this? So if you Google it, you'll get different answers. You'll get different answers. Of course, you always do. And some will say this is an angel. This is an angel, but this can't be an angel. This can't be an angel. Let me give you a couple reasons this can't be an angel. It, number one, this commander of the Lord's army allows Joshua to bow before him and worship him. And throughout scripture, angels never receive worship. In fact, in the book of Revelation, when John, who wrote the book of Revelation, sees an angel, John bows before the angel and the angel says, what are you doing? Get up. Don't worship me. See, angels are created beings. They aren't our creator. And so angels in scripture never receive worship, yet this commander is allowing Joshua to bow down and worship him. So it's, it's not an angel. Also, we have an indication of who this is. You've heard this phrase before, take off your sandals. The ground you're standing on is holy. Where, where else did you hear that? 
Moses, he walked up to a burning bush, the predecessor of Joshua. Moses walked up to a burning bush and a voice from the bush cried out, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. And that was the voice of God himself speaking to Moses from the bush. So who is this commander? This commander is Christ himself who has stepped on to the battlefield. And some of you are like, okay, I thought Jesus is later. I thought this is the Old Testament. Isn't Christ at Christmas? isn't Christ come in the book of Matthew. Listen, Christ has always been. He's above all. He's the beginning and the end. He just enters our world in human skin at Christmas, but he's always been in charge. He's always been the commander. And so this is, this is Christ himself who has stepped here saying, you join my team. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. All right, let's see what happens. Chapter six, verse one. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priest blowing the horns. When you hear the priest give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. I won't read the rest of the story, but God does exactly what he says he will do. The people obey. They walk around the town. They shout. They blow ram's horns and the walls crumble. The walls fall because God always keeps his promises. He always does. So what does this have to do with me? With me, with you. So we've been saying that the promised land is a picture of the promised life. And if you're a Christian, you've received the promised life. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and have it in full. If you're not yet a Christian, Christ wants to give you a full life. And so what does this story have to do with me being a Christian? What does this story have to do with me living in this promised life that he has for me? Well, at least four things. And if you want to take notes or look at your listening guide, let me walk us through this. This comes from the passage. First, the promised life is about being a Christian. The Christian life is about, number one, his provision, not ours. His provision, not ours. The walls did not fall because of the people's provision or the people's work. The walls fell because of the Lord's provision and the Lord's work. Verse two, God says this to Joshua. I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. I'm the one who's doing this. You aren't capturing Jericho in your own merit and in your own might. I'm the one who is handing them over to you. This incredible story is all about God's provision, God's work, not the people's work. So what does this have to do with me? Everything, because listen, you're a Christian not because anything you've done. You're a Christian because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. Your commander, Christ, entered your battlefield. 
He entered this broken and messed up place and on the cross he took all of your sin upon himself to give you all of his forgiveness. He did all of the work. Being a Christian is not about your ability to flag God down with your goodness. It's not about your ability to do more good things in your life than you do bad things and show God your spiritual resume. Being a Christian is not about that at all. It is about understanding that we simply receive receive the goodness of God. We receive his grace. He does all the work for us. On the cross, that's what he did. If you are a basketball fan, um, perhaps you remember, of course, if you're a fan, you remember or have heard the story of Michael Jordan's greatest game. It was March of 1990. The Chicago Bulls, who Jordan played for, we're playing um, the Cleveland Cavaliers, who Jordan used to love to beat up on the Cavs. Sorry, Cleveland. And so Jordan was playing um, the Cavaliers. He had in this game 69 points, 69 points. He had 18 rebounds. He shot 62% from the field. I think we even have clips from uh, the game that are happening there. It was an amazing game. On the team that played alongside Jordan was a rookie named Stacy King. Stacy King played as a rookie often plays, he struggled in his rookie season. He turned out to be a great player, but he struggled his, in that game particular. He, he missed some key free throws down the stretch, and he, he ended with his stat line of only having one point. One point. Michael Jordan had 69 points. Stacey King had one point. So at the end of the game, reporters are looking for Jordan. Of course, you want to talk to Jordan. Jordan is exhausted and he's exhilarated. So he runs to the locker room at the end of the game and the reporters don't have anyone to talk to. So they find Stacy King. <laughs> and they ask Stacy King, so how does it feel? How does it feel to be a part of this epic game? And Stacey King responds, I'll never forget this night the night that Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. <laughs> it was good. Well done, Stacy King, well done. <laughs> Stacy King was wise, was wise to get in on the performance of Michael Jordan, to ride his coattails. He was wise to get in on the offering of Michael Jordan, and we are wise to get in on the offering of Christ, our commander. Listen, I didn't bring any points to the table. I didn't even bring one point to the table. In all of my sinfulness and all of my pride and all of my selfishness, I brought nothing to the table but my sin. But my commander came here to win me to himself, not with a sword, but with a cross. And on the cross, he took all that sin away, all of it. William Temple, one of my favorite theologians, he says this, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's all I brought. But Jesus, his part in his mercy, he provides all of the forgiveness, all of the righteousness, all of the mercy. Being a Christian isn't about your provision. It's about his provision. All right, number two, let's move on. Number two, being a Christian is about his promise, not our promise. It's about his promise, not, not ours. It's about his ability to keep his promises to us, not our ability to keep our promises to him. 
The walls fell in this story, not because the people made these bold statements to God and promised they would do awesome things for him and therefore God brought the walls down. No, the walls fell because God always keeps his promise. And you being a Christian isn't about your ability to keep your promises. I have blown so many promises I've made to God. So many times I've said, I'm drawing a line in the sand, God. From here on, I'm going to do better in this area of my life. I'm drawing a line in the sand, God. From here on, I'm going to trust you more in this area. And in my sinfulness, I fall over and over and over again. I am so glad that being a Christian isn't about my ability. It's about his ability to keep his promises. And so let's look at the promise that God gave these people. This is amazing. I want you to press in. Genesis chapter 15. And so this is on your your listening guide as well, but we're going to go back 400 years to when the promise was first given. I want you to see this. Why am I going to press this into you this morning? Because I want you to walk out with confidence that God keeps his promises. And so we're going to go back 400 years before Jericho, and we're going to see everything that God promised he keeps. He keeps every promise. So God goes to Abraham. Abram at the time, and God is going to start the nation of Israel through Abraham's family. And God does exactly how God always operates. He looks for things that seem unlikely to do his great work. Why is Abraham unlikely? An unlikely candidate to be the father of a family that becomes a nation? Abraham's dad was an idol worshiper, and Abraham struggled with infertility with his wife. He couldn't get his wife pregnant. And so he's a hundred years old. I mean, the doctors told me we were going to struggle. I mean, for sure that cat was struggling a hundred years old and couldn't, and his wife was struggling. They were, they couldn't have a child. And yet God tells Abraham and Sarah, you're going to be the father of a family that's going to turn into a nation. And this is the promise that God gives him. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure. Some of you need to hear that this morning. You can be sure. In a world that is so uncertain, in a painful and broken world, where it feels like there's very few things that are sure and certain, in the promises of God, you can be sure. You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. That happened. That happened. So Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had Joseph. Joseph goes from there, from Israel, from Canaan, goes from there to Egypt. He's shipped off and he then becomes the second in command over all of Egypt. A famine hits over here. Joseph forgives his brothers who shipped him off and they go and join him over here and God uses Joseph to preserve the family. But now they're in a foreign land. They're in a foreign land. They were in a foreign land to be rescued from the famine, but they're in a foreign land. And the next Pharaoh doesn't remember all that Joseph did for the Egyptians. And so look what happens next. You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. That happened. Where where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. That happened. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But God says this, here's his promise. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. That happened. God sent a series of plagues. And after the 10th plague, Egypt basically begs Israel to leave, leave, leave. So these plagues stop. And on their way out, they ask for the silver and gold of the Egyptians who held them captive. And they leave with great wealth. 
Verse 15, as for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. That's where Joshua is in Jericho. You return to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. God always keeps his promises. Listen, 400 years is a long time, but God always keeps his promises. And he keeps his promises to you too. So some of you today are struggling with uncertainty over your career, over your job. And his promise to you, if you're his, is that he will meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Some of you are wrestling with a tragedy or some painful situation in your life and you wonder how on earth is this ever going to work out? And God promises that in some way, in a way that only he can pull it together, that he will work all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Some of you feel like there's people in your life who are backstabbing you or are constantly looking for a way to take you down. The Lord promises that he is going to be your rear guard. He's got your back. He promises that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. He promises that there is nothing in all of creation that is able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He always keeps his promises. He keeps his promises to his people. All right, number three. What do we see in this story? We see that the Christian life is about his power, not our power. It's about his power, not ours. Please don't misread the story and think that the walls fell because the people shouted at just the right decibel. As if like, man, they just hit it. They hit it at just the right note and it, something happened and the, the, the sound reverbed in the walls and the walls fell. The walls did not fall because of the shouts of the people. The walls did not fall because of the power of the shouts. The walls fell because of the power of the Savior. But the shouts showed the Lord that these people were going to trust him. Your cries to God shows God that you trust him. And when you cry out to him, he will move in power. The power isn't in you. The power is in your Savior who you cry out to. But when you cry out to him, he does move in power. The Christian life is a life of power, but it's not your power. It's his power. Thanksgiving week, 2006, Kay and I go to New York City. My parents invited us there. Um, They wanted to take us on a trip to New York City, Thanksgiving week, Macy's Day Parade, all the good restaurants. And so we're like, yes. And so we went and did that with my folks. And then on Tuesday night, we went to a church. This is three years, eight months in on the infertility journey. And so we went to a church and we were struggling. I mean, beat down, desperate type of struggling. You know, first when you find out that you're having a difficult time being pregnant, it's hard to figure out who you're going to tell. We told people in our life group. But then it's, you don't want to say where the struggle is. Is it her? Is it you? Well, here was the reality for us. And after three years and eight months, I just told people who I didn't even know at this church in Brooklyn um, that the 
the reality is it was both of us. The reason it was going to be hard for us to have a child is the doctors looked at Kay and said, you're going to have a difficult time conceiving. And the doctors looked at me and said, you're going to have a difficult time helping her conceive. And so it's both of you. And so there was guys who would brag um, in their 20s about, I heard dudes say things in the locker room like, man, my count's so high, I can look at a girl and get her pregnant, man. That's how strong I am. Uh, That wasn't me. My swimmers were struggling. And so I... I'm at this church in Brooklyn with um, people I don't even know. It was called Brooklyn Tabernacle. It was a church that's known for prayer, similar to Mariners. If you're here and there's a struggle going on in your life, at the end of the service, we'll have people who would love to pray with you. There are people here in this church who, there's people in our church who wake up early every day and pray for people in this church. This is a church built of godly and faithful people who seek the face of Jesus. And in Brooklyn, that was the case too. And so we share with a group of people that we're, we're, we're struggling. We, we can't have, doctors say we can't have a kid. We, we, we just, we want, we want a child. We wrote down on a prayer request form that their prayer team would pray for um, three months after the prayer request form for us to conceive. And three months later, the doctors told us that Kay was pregnant. And a year later, God gave us Eden. It was a miracle. It was, it, was God's grace to, it was God's grace to us. It wasn't by my strength or my might or my power. It was by the power of the Lord. It was why. It is how it happened. Yes. Thank you. I, I've, I've struggled and I've been hesitant to share that story. In fact, I don't know if I've even shared the whole story ever before. And the reason I've been hesitant is... I don't know if that would have been a helpful story for me to hear if I was sitting where you're sitting. I think during that rough time, if I had heard someone say that, I would have felt guilty as if, well, are you saying that my prayers aren't enough? Why isn't God hearing my prayers? Why isn't God answering my prayer that way? It's, yeah, good for you, he answered your prayer, but he's not answering my prayer. And so here's what I've learned. God always keeps his promises, but sometimes his promises and his plans They are not clear. Sometimes they don't make sense. I don't understand why sometimes he answers this one this way and sometimes he answers another one another way. Sometimes his plans don't make sense. I have to hold to what the scripture says that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Sometimes his plans just don't make sense. I mean, do you think it made sense to the people when they found out how they were gonna take down Jericho? Can you imagine being in the army? Joshua draw, comes up with a whiteboard and says, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. No, 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 you don't need your weapons. Nope. I know it sounds crazy, but we're just going to march around the city and shout. That's all we're going to do. We're just going to shout. The people would have thought, this guy is crazy. Can you imagine a college football coach doing that with his team on Thursday? I've canceled practice. We're just going to go to the stadium and we're just going to march around it and blow some trumpets. That's all we're going to do. I mean, this is not a good strategy, but this is how God works in this situation. Sometimes his plans don't seem to make sense to us, but his ways are always perfect. And here's what I learned as I went through that really painful season. More than God wanted to work things out for me, he was using the pain of that season to work in me. And in the middle of your struggle, God works in you. All right, let's move on to number four. The Christian life, the promised life, is about his plans, not ours. 
His plans, not ours. I have seen preachers butcher this story before, the story of Jericho. And here's how preachers have butchered it. They've essentially said things like, hey, whatever wall you have in your life, whatever wall it is, you just walk up to that wall and you, you demand God to speak that wall down. You speak over that wall and God will crush the wall. That is not at all what happens in this story. Joshua sees the commander of the Lord's army, Christ the commander, and Joshua says, hey, are you for me or against me? And the commander says, that's the wrong question. I'm not here to join your team, you join my team. God isn't interested in joining our plans, he wants to know if we're going to join his plans. He's not interested in being a consultant in our life, he's the commander over our lives. It's very different. And so don't misread the story and think, Man, there's somebody at work who's really getting on my nerves. After service today, I'm going to the office. I'm going to march around the cubicle seven times, and boom, that person's gone on Monday. That's not, that's not how it happens. Or there's a house that I really want badly in CDM, and I'm just going to, I'm going to go march around CDM today, and I'm going to get my wife to blow a trumpet or something, and we're just going to march around, and then the house price is just going to drop big time, and boom, we're getting that house. This is not what the passage is about. This passage is not about us recruiting God to join our plans. It's us bowing our knee to his plans for us. It's a very different approach, and that's what the Christian life is about. And some of you are like, but I like it better the other way. I like Jesus to be my consultant, to help me out. I mean, I can set some plans. I'm a pretty good planner. I've done business plans before and portfolio plans before and life plans before. People even ask me to help them with their plans. And so I have a plan for my life, you may be saying, and I just want, I understand Jesus is God. And so I just want Jesus to help me with my plans. Isn't that gonna be good? But your plans for you are never as good as God's plans for you. They're never as good. His plans for you are always better. Where are you trying to get God to join your plans? Is it your career? Here's my career, God. This is what I'm doing. This is my 30s. This is my 40s. This is where I'm going to be by age 50. Help me with my plans, God. Is it your portfolio? This is what my portfolio looks like. This is what I plan on doing with my life. God, hook me up. Is it your family? Is it your kid? For me, where I've struggled is my, is my kids. You can imagine when you spend that time wanting a kid so bad that you start making plans. I've made plans for my family. I remember driving in my truck in Miami where we lived before our kids were born and having make-believe conversations with my kids before they were born. Imagining what life would be with them when they were in elementary school and then junior high and high school, the things they would do, the things we would do together, my plans for them. What life would be like later when I'm a grandfather. I mean, I had all of these plans and I've got to be very cautious that I don't bring my plans to God and say, God, this is the plans and now you help me execute these plans. Because our commander, Christ, when I gave him my sin, I'm so glad he took it. He took it all. But I also gave him my life. It's his life now. It's his plans now. 
It's his agenda now. When you gave Jesus your sin, if you offer Jesus your sin, he takes it. There's no sin left on you. It's all on Jesus. There's no sin left on you. You are now perfect in the eyes of God, not because of your provision, but because of his provision. You are now completely forgiven in the eyes of God, not because of your work, but because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So in the cross, Jesus doesn't yell out, do more for me, do more for me. On the cross, Jesus yells out, it is finished. I've provided all of the work for all of your sin to be completely forgiven. So I'm really grateful today that we can give Jesus all of our sin and he takes it. But when we give him our sin, we also give him our lives. He's the commander. He's the commander. He's not the consultant. And as the commander, this is good news for you. His plans for your life are so much better. They're so much more full. They're so much more filled with joy and peace than your own plans. Will you bow your knee to his plans for you? Our worship team wrote this song. Our worship leaders actually wrote this song about this story in the book of Joshua that we've been walking through. And so in a moment, we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing. Some of you today cry out to him. There's a wall of shame maybe in your life that he wants to tear down. Cry out to him to tear down that wall. There's a wall of worry that perhaps is built around your life and he wants to tear down that wall because he wants to fill you with his peace. Cry out and he'll tear down that wall. As we sing, let's celebrate that our commander has removed all of our sin from us, that our commander has defeated our enemies of sin and shame and death, that our commander is not dead, but our commander is alive. He's alive. Let's stand and let's worship together.
few things I want you to know as we leave. We're going to have a group of people right here to my left, your right, who would love to pray with you. If there's anything going on in your life that you're wrestling with, that's, you, you walked in with a, a burden that you are carrying today, we don't want you to carry that alone. We want to be able to pray with you. And so simply move to your right there. The team would love to pray with you. If there's something in your life that you would like to pray for healing over, we have some elders, our elder team would love to pray with you. And so you simply walk through the center and then turn to the right and you'll see our elder prayer rooms there. And then also after our service today is we have an opportunity where we're gonna see some people get baptized, including my youngest daughter is getting baptized today, which I'm excited about. And so it's beautiful, it's beautiful. And so this is what we believe about baptism, that when somebody, it's a symbol of what God's already done in our hearts for those of us who have been forgiven and been rescued by Christ. When someone goes under the water, it's, it's a symbol of their old life is now gone and Christ has given them a brand new life. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone and the new has come. And so that's what we get to celebrate today. So if you're walking by and you see someone get baptized, just shout and just celebrate because it's a really, really big deal. Let's lift up our hands and receive God's blessing as we leave. Lord, these are your children. And Lord, we stand today in your might and your power, not our own. Lord, I pray this week for your children here that they would walk in your power, not theirs. That they would believe and receive your promises and not feel the burden to make promises. I pray that they would enjoy and rest in your provision for them this week, knowing that you are a perfect and good father who accomplished all of their salvation for them on the cross. And for that, we say thank you. Amen. Have a great week.